So I have spent a lot of time over my career being an accredited election observer. So I will go to other countries. They work with us and they say, we want you to come and observe our elections. We want to make sure they're, they're free and fair. Jennifer, we're talking about people who will stand in line for hours on hours on hours in. I've been in countries where it was, you know, below freezing to countries where it is, I mean, it is just, you're in the full heat, no shade. They will have babies, right? Because these women won't always have childcare. And they will stand there all day desperate to vote in an election. What do we have to do? We have to drive in our SUVs, a couple blocks or whatever it is, right? I live in the city. I can walk two blocks to the precinct. And I mean, heaven help us if we have to wait in line an hour. Okay, <laughs> heaven help us, right? And our voter turnout is usually always less than 50%. The voter turnout in most developing countries is usually, I mean, between, I believe, don't quote me, it's 70 to 90%. Wow. Why? Because they understand the power of the ballot box. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interests in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate. And if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Welcome to this episode of Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassour. On today's episode, I have this powerhouse woman on with me who is going to be talking about her journey in finding what field in the realm of politics and policy she most fit into. Michelle Bickering is my guest today. She is the National Engagement Director for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. Prior to joining the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, she was nominated by the president and unanimously confirmed by the Senate as an assistant administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Michelle is a passionate advocate for women's empowerment and equality, and she was the leading architect of the White House-led Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. It is a U.S. government initiative to economically empower 50 million women by 2025. Prior to joining the Global Leadership Coalition, Michelle served 12 years at the IRI, the International Republican Institute. During her tenure there, she provided leadership on democracy, rights, and governance initiatives in Washington, D.C. and abroad including serving as the IRI's country director based in Indonesia. She also served on the Congressional Advisory Council of the U.S. House of Representatives House Democracy Partnership Program. Michelle is a native of Iowa, and she and her husband have a daughter, and they live in Washington, D.C. So she is in the trenches, but she sees a different side of things. She sees a side where people around the globe are not as fortunate as we are and don't have the same opportunities that we do, whether that be economic, education, health, housing, food, being able to sustain your, your entire life and your entire ecosystem. Women don't have access to jobs driving cars, or even being really happy when they birth a baby girl because they know what's to come for them. I wanted to have Michelle on because I want you to see that there is so much more 
to policy and politics than just what we see and hear on TV or in the news. Michelle is actually involved in the global female empowerment arena. She has a political science degree. She has done international development. And that is something that she kind of walked into. And you'll hear her talk about this, how she had a passion for foreign policy and considered herself an expert. And then a door opened and she ran through it. I am proud to call Michelle a friend, someone who I really admire. And again, she is a powerhouse. And the cool thing is she actually also learned under Dr. Condoleezza Rice, which is super cool. Michelle, thank you so much for being on Political Contessa. How are you doing? Jennifer, I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. So I got to meet you a couple of months ago at the Women's Public Leadership Network event in New Orleans, and you were up on stage and you were talking about your your career and how you got involved. And I thought, someone I need to have on the podcast because you... You have such a different, your, how you got involved is kind of, you know, how I did only a little bit later in, you know, in my teens, but how, where you took your career path. I think most women, when we get into politics, we start as, you know, stuffing envelopes and, you know, all of that stuff, right. Which you did as a little kid, but then and I'm not going to answer for you or give away all the secrets of the podcast. But, you know, then when as we go through, some people leave and, you know, go on to other careers. Some people work in government, you know, state government or some agency. Your career, though, has kind of taken you all over the place. So I want to just go back and start. So, you know, for for the purposes of our podcast, you know, for me, it is so important to get women, you know, and I don't want to say into politics, but talking about policy, I feel like so many times, especially as women on the right, we are pigeonholed as, you know, why are you on the right? Why shouldn't you, why aren't you Democrats? Because all women, because of our gender are supposed to be Democrats. We, you know, just by our anatomy, which seems like, seems totally crazy you know, as a woman, we should only be concerned about the right to choose. We should only be concerned about, you know, equal rights for everyone. And in the meantime, as a educated woman, I think, well, that's BS. I think I could be engaged in a lot more. I'm concerned about international affairs. I'm concerned about the economy. I'm concerned about my kids' education, and I'm concerned about my mother's health care at her age. But, you know, overall, I think that we as women have so much to offer and so much to discuss. And, and someone like you with your background is really going to be such a big benefit to, and, you know, to my listener who wants to know, well, you know, I, I'm interested in this, but I don't want to just work on campaigns or be a fundraiser. So, Michelle, how did you start? Well, Jennifer, thank you for that. And, you know, I say when people ask me, you know, end of the day, I am literally an Iowa farm girl who fell in love with the world. And no one is more surprised than me. And I feel so grateful for really what turned out to be an unexpected journey, but one that has been so fulfilling and so rewarding. And for me, it really goes back to mentorship and this, you know, this idea that, you know, when I was growing up in Iowa, Iowa is, as many people know, a very political state, right? And I always laugh, especially because, you know, we have really cold, harsh winters. If it weren't for the Iowa caucus season, you know, we would have literally nothing else to do in January. And so when I grew up, you know, I, my background was really, and I would say my future was really guided by two very strong women in my life. And I often talk about this because it was so fundamental to really the path I took, which would eventually land me in global women's empowerment. 
which again, wasn't something I had foreseen, but an area when I got there, realized it was kind of what I didn't know I was always searching for. And so I go back into those early days when we were you know, living on a farm in Iowa and my grandmother was really politically active and going back to, you know, 70s, early 80s and this idea that, you know, all politics was truly local, right? I mean, if you were politically active, you know, you were writing letters to your congressman, you mentioned earlier, you know, you were stuffing those envelopes, envelopes, you were door to door, you know, knocking, going house to house, you know, knocking on doors for candidates, you were doing phone banks, you know, politics was very local and very personal. And my grandmother was really involved in issues that she was really passionate about. And so from a young age, she just involved me in that. And so it became like a hobby. And I guess I just thought from a young age, that's what you did. You know, you advocated for issues you cared about. You know, we would take the bus down to Des Moines. Once a year, she would take me to our state capital. It was a little over a four-hour drive from where we were in rural Northwest Iowa. And I remember, I mean, it was like, the scene when Dorothy, you know, you know, goes to Oz and the Iowa State Capitol is this beautiful, beautiful building. And, and to this young girl, it was just grandeur. And this idea that these people who worked there, these senators and these representatives, right, they were making decisions and it was felt so powerful to me and just so important. And then there was my grandmother, someone who they were listening to someone who, you know, was advocating for causes. And I watched her and I thought, wow, she seems to be wielding all of this import. And yet my grandmother had only ever went to school until she was 12 years old. You know, my grandmother in modern day equivalency went to school through the fifth grade um, and then had to stay home and care for her ill mother. And so when my mother was born, which was um, her oldest daughter, my mother was the first and girl in our family in any generation to graduate from high school. So by the time I was born, I'm now the oldest granddaughter. And my mother had decided I would absolutely be the first woman in our family in any generation who went to college. And my mother took on extra odd jobs. She, you know, her and my father were working really hard. They both have this farm it was really difficult, right? Farming in the 80s. This was not a huge money-making operation. And so they both had to work extra jobs just to make ends meet. And yet she was taking on an additional odd jobs just to save money for me to go to college. And so by the time I went to college, I knew two things. One, I was there because of the hard work and the belief that these women had instilled and invested in me. And two, I had been brought up just with this background in really civic education, although I really didn't have the words for it then. And so when I went to college, I was like, well, of course, I'm going to study political science because, you know, I believe, you know, still even then that my grandmother was, you know, the epitome of, you know, a politician because of what she did. So I think like so many young people, you know, I'm going to school. I'm, of course, the only girl in my college, you know, taking poli-sci classes. I graduate in the late 90s. I am the only girl who graduates with a poli-sci degree. And I had no idea what to do with it. You know, I, I knew I loved this idea of government. I felt very strongly. I came from a strong faith background. I knew I believed strongly that in my belief system and that, you know, I was a compassionate conservative. I wanted to do good in the world, but I never knew what that was going to look like. And it was through a series of really wonderful happenstances that I ended up going into the international development field. And it's kind of a long meandering story, but in the, in the 2000s, so I married my college sweetheart. Yes, he's <laughs> wonderful. We are married. We're, it's funny. I was doing the math this morning. We have been married 23 years. Wow. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. We have a young daughter who's six. Wow. It a while to get around to that. Yes. <laughs> Good him. for you, though. You guys yes. had a lot of fun before you decided to have kids. 
We did. We did. You know, we got married super young and we grew up together. And, and, and I think that's what was so important for us. We were married at 22 and we kind of just, I think both discovered ourselves as individuals and as a couple, right? And, and we really grew up together. And so in, in the early 2000s, um, I had started working on the Hill for a congressman. And at that time, this congressman was working on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And I was fascinated. This was right after 9-11, right? And so like so many Americans, I wouldn't have told you that I was really interested in international affairs. I knew I loved, again, politics. I knew I loved government. But 9-11 happened. And I think like so many of us, I found my senses awakened to what's going on in this larger world. Like what has happened here on our doorstep? And my boss at the time working on the Foreign Affairs Committee was very involved in the 9-11, the hearings, you know, the commissions looking into what happened. And I got a wonderful opportunity to actually go and work at the National Security Council under then Dr. Condoleezza Rice. And this changed, and I will say I pinpoint my career trajectory back to this wonderful experience working for President Bush and Dr. Rice in the National Security Council. And, you know, at that time, they were both passionate about this idea, really what was a freedom agenda, right? And, and they looked at what was happening overseas and they said, you know, we believe fully that every human being is endowed with, you know, rights and they should have the ability to have their voices heard and to be able to exercise their rights. And so looking at what was going on in the Middle East, and I started learning about the terrible plight of Afghan women, and then starting to see the other ills that were happening and the fact that, you know, democracy, you know, in so many parts of the world, you know, was stunted, and there, there was a lack of freedom of information and freedom of speech, and starting to like, look around me like, oh, wow. There is so much here that I have taken for granted. Like it just opened my eyes as, as this kid who was like, you know, really sure of her thoughts and her convictions and her ideas. And suddenly I just realized there was this whole world out there. Um, and so based on this, a part of the, the portfolio I was working on was actually the former Soviet republics, which is so prescient now with when you look at what's going on in Ukraine. And we could have, Jennifer, an entire podcast series right now. Oh my God, we'll have to do that again. Yeah. Like part two needs to be unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the historical reason. And you know what's so interesting? I mean, we remember that, right? But if you Mm -hmm. Always saying, I feel like we need to give people history lessons all the time. Like, here's a pamphlet to remind you of conflicts. Here's a pamphlet to remind you of what the world was like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or, you know, 80 years ago. Because I think people yeah. forget and then they just, you know, they're feel whatever. We can go yes. into that another time. Sorry, yes. to, something that frustrates me so much. So good. <laughs> well, and Jennifer, we'll get to kind of what I talk about later, but history is. Secular. And if you're not paying attention to what's happening now and viewing it through a historical lens, it will continue to repeat itself. And so, you know, like you, I mean, I remember I, I tell this to my colleagues all the time who are much younger than me. I grew up doing the drills in school. I don't know if you remember this, where it was like, okay, if Russia, yes. you know, would somehow disseminate a nuclear bomb. These are the drills we would yes. do. Do you remember this? I remember. The Cold War, right? It was yep. like, and I remember that was as a little child. And it's funny, I have a six-year-old now. And I think, I remember being that age doing these drills, like what happens if a nuclear bomb is disseminated? And, and so then, you know, fast forward, you know, I don't know, I can't even do the math now, 25 years, and I'm in the White House. And the portfolio I was, you know, assisting on was literally the the countries that were comprised of the former Soviet republics. So they were the, the newly, if you will, independent states that came out of the USSR. And my mind was blown. And so what we were doing as, as the U.S. government was saying, like, we recognize that these countries now have gained independence. 
they not only have they gained independence, right, but they have changed everything. Their economic system, which went from literally socialism to capitalism overnight. And then they changed their political structures overnight from, again, communism to democracy. And then all of the social order, right? Everything changed overnight. And it was this idea that if you don't support this, you know, in a very positive way through capacity building, through diplomacy, through development, these countries will, one, either collapse or two, you know, they will open up, you know, avenues for insurrection. Um, You know, it will lead to conflict. It will lead to crisis, right? All of these things. And so I learned through this portfolio how the United States supports democratic development and how that's a part of our national security strategy. I was fascinated by this. And what I think most fascinated me about it is we do this because of the return on investment it has here at home. So there is a tangible return on the investment. So for the 1% of the foreign affairs budget, so the international affairs budget that we invest overseas, it's less than 1% of our entire budget, we have a quantifiable return on the investment on our economy here at home and on our security and stability. It just blew my mind by doing good things. And that just blew my mind. So you're doing good things. You're helping other people and doing good things for people here at home. Area I became really, really passionate about is when I went from there to work for an international non-governmental organization, I got asked. And I, of course, was still working on the, the Eurasia region. So it was a geographical region, of, again, the former Soviet republics. And they asked me, and I have this really funny story. The president of the organization at the time said to me, hey, we are really increasing our, our focus and looking at women's political partici- participation, excuse me, and leadership globally. And we recognize that this is an area that if we're really going to put targeted investment in, we're going to see a multiplier effect in all of our development outcomes. We'd love for you to run it. And I was like, thank you. No. (laughs) That sounds a lot. And he was like, what's that now? And I said, yeah, I, that's not me. You know, I'm just like, I, I just really see myself as this hardcore, you know, foreign policy expert. Obviously, I had way too much pride for my age. We'll talk about that in another podcast. (laughs) And he listened to me. He listened to me. And I was like, you know, I just don't want to get, you know, siloed in like women's issues or like gender studies. You know, I'm just, I really see myself as like this foreign policy expert. And he listened and he said a couple things. One, He's just just a lovely, lovely man. I just learned so much from him. He sadly has passed away now. Michelle, you are way too young for either yourself or anyone else to think you're a policy expert in anything. Yeah. <laughs> that should also be disseminated right? to people. <laughs> right? And that's just, you know, God bless him. This was about 20 years ago. And he was so right. And two, he said, I don't think you understand really one, the scope of the issue, and two, the role this has to play in not only foreign policy, but national security. And he's like, so guess what you're going to do? You're going to go home tonight. You're going to look into this field of study and research. And once you come back to me tomorrow. So I huffed and puffed and, you know, went home, Googled it, started looking into it. And I was hooked within an hour because I love stats. I love a challenge. And he started looking into one, the disparity, right? So you start looking at, and, and you and I have talked about this, right? Because we both love politics. We both love this idea of women's voices and women's leadership. Well, I was just blown away. And this had never really dawned on me before. I had never looked into these things. When you look at disparities across the world and you look at the fact, you know, we all know the stats, women are half the world's population. So I started looking at stats and you looked at women's representation in national level, let's say parliaments, we call it Congress, but most equivalents are a parliament across the world, it was at that time about 20%. If you looked at, so now it's 25%. I'll use stats now, 25%. If you look at women heads of state, out of 192 countries around the world, there's like 20 total. And I don't mean countries, 20 total. And in some countries, a head of government and a head of state, you might have one of both, right? And then I looked at 
well, what about women ministers, right? Like here, it would be a secretary of a department. In other countries, it might be a minister. Again, we're talking like 14%. And I was like, what? And then I started looking at, okay, well, what's the correlation between representation and gender disparities when it comes to outcomes? So let's say women's literacy rates or women's poverty rates. Well, it shouldn't have surprised me. And I don't know why I had never really thought to look into this before. You could see clear market, right? Disparity rates. So in countries where you had the least amount of, you know, women's, let's say, gender representation, right? You had the highest levels of, of course, poverty, of crisis, of conflict, of all of these things happening, right? And, and what was, and what I really started to realize, I, of course, took the job the next day. I went in and said, challenge accepted, took the job, never looked back. And it is an area all these years later, well, my current job doesn't focus on it largely since that time. And it was about 2010, I believe, consecutively, my job focused largely on women's empowerment and equality as a means to meeting our development outcomes. And it was fascinating to me. I looked at it through the lens of women's political empowerment equality. I looked at it through women's economic empowerment equality. And every statistic shows you the same thing. If you want to achieve peace, have women negotiators at the table. Seems like, right? I mean, you and I could say, well, duh, right? It doesn't happen. Women across the world right now are less than 13% of all negotiators at peace treaties. Guess what? All peace treaties fail. Uh, 50% of all peace, peace treaties fail within five years. Of course they do. Because you can't have lasting peace. You can't have mediation. You can't have justice when all the parties aren't a part of that negotiation process, right? It's the same for everything we looked at. And so both at the NGO, and then I spent the last four years as an assistant administrator at the U.S. Agency of International Development, where, again, all of our programs look specifically at targeted interventions to make sure any program we were looking at, women had to be a direct beneficiary of our assistance. Because we also realized when you invested in women, you could trace, studies have been done on this, that for like 96 cents of every dollar you invest in women, it directly impacted their family, right? So what did women do? They bought food for the family. They bought clothes for the kids. They made sure there was heat. They made sure the kids had enough money to go to school. Then what happens? They're buying this from other local women in the community. So now you've got this multiplier effect. It's helping the community. It's helping, you know, just went on and on and on. And so it was fascinating to me because now we were creating strong families. Now we are creating strong communities. And, and it was just fascinating that by empowering this one woman, we were just empowering this larger ecosystem. And I have to say that on all the great good it did for these beneficiaries, I came away and it made me realize as an American how much I had taken for granted what my rights were here in the United States. Because what I had recognized was that as a woman who had been born in the United States, I had rights when I was born that no one was taking away from me, right? When I was born, I had a birth certificate, which proudly listed my name and it proudly listed my mother's name. That still does not happen in many areas in Afghanistan today. It will say daughter of the man. It will say on the marriage, daughter of the man marries this man, right? You will have countries where the girls, right? Impoverished countries in, in regions of the world that I have worked in where the families are overcome with grief when the daughter is born because they don't offer the social and economic safety net, right? The boy does. They, so, you know, the girls aren't going to school, right? The, the girls aren't going to be able to get the jobs the boys do. The girls won't be able to do the strong physical backbreaking work maybe the boys do, right? And so what you often see is just terrible outcomes for these girls, right? And you, you just 
see by the very fact in so many of the countries where I've worked and I've, I've lived and worked abroad that these girls, just because they were born girls, were already just, they were undervalued, they were underappreciated, and they were not equal. You know, there's stats I see now, and it goes from like these poor babies who are born, blows my mind. And you know, you're a mom, uh, a mom of daughters. I'm a mom of a daughter. And I, I can't even tell you like how much pride they have in my you know, my girl daughter. And I think of these women who, who wept and it was not because I think in so many cases, it's because they knew what that daughter was being born into, right? Because they had lived it. They knew what was ahead for that daughter, right? A little bit different than some of the men who felt such disappointment in this girl child, but the mothers felt acutely. They knew exactly what this child would face. And then I look at women as adults, right? When I was doing women's economic empowerment programs, it just blew my mind that it didn't get better when these girls became women. We still, across the world today, this blows my mind, 2.7 billion women across the world do not have the opportunity to have the same jobs as men. The World Bank does research every year through their Women, Business, and Law report to look at countries, right? There's still 104 countries around the world, 104, that still do not allow women to have the same job as men. That's 2022, right? And it's just mind-blowing as an American, right? I just think you can't imagine someone telling you, you cannot have that job. For this reason, this reason, and this reason. Unbelievable that they're still stuck in that mindset. Completely. And and it is very difficult. And, And one of the things I will say, it also makes it really difficult to do empowerment and equality work globally, right? Because you also have to be very thoughtful in your approach. And I have talked a lot about that as well, too, because you know, the American experience. And again, I tell you, I, these, my career in global women's empowerment equality has, has made me, I think such a better American because I'm so much more appreciative one of my rights here. It has also made me, and interestingly, I would say, even though I'm very committed to my conservative views and my position on issues, it's also made me much more conciliatory it's made me much more open to dialogue, to listen, because I have met so many people in other country who, one, their voices are never even allowed to be heard, or two, they have always just had people talk for them or, or advocate or legislate for them. And I have realized the greatest gift we can give each other is to listen. And we just don't do that enough. We don't have to agree with each other. But it is a great gift to be listened to. Maybe we should send every member of Congress, including the squad, to do your job for a year and then see if maybe we could work a little bit better (laughs) negotiating and collaborating, because I feel like there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from what you have seen out there. And people take it for granted. I mean, you know, right? It's how many people do you know that, I mean, I go through this all the time. I cite these statistics all the time. We, in the city of Boston, there was a, the mayor's race was in last fall and 25% of the electorate came out to vote in the preliminary. Six weeks later, the general election was decided by 33%. So that means that 25% of the electorate actually decided who the next mayor was going to be by eliminating all other choices and leaving it to these two particular candidates. And so you get what you get because you don't go vote. And to me, it drives me nuts that we have this tool at our disposal and people do not use it. And then you go to other countries and you see that there is no democracy or women cannot vote or women cannot drive or women cannot have a career or, you know, whatever it is. It's terrible. Sorry to cut you off. It's just one of those things that makes me so nuts that I just think people really take it for granted and and just like to complain, but don't understand that we are in this very special situation in our country. Jennifer, 
thank you for bringing up voter turnout. It is one of my, and you can see me right now. Our viewers can't. It is one of like the things that I get so passionate about because, okay, so to your point, I, so I have spent a lot of time over my career being an accredited election observer. So I will go to other countries. They work with us and they say, we want you to come and observe our elections. We want to make sure they're, they're free and fair. Jennifer, we're talking about people who will stand in line for hours on hours on hours in. I've been in countries where it was, you know, below freezing to countries where it is, I mean, it is just, you're in the full heat, no shade. They will have babies, right? Because these women won't always have childcare and they will stand there all day desperate to vote in an election. What do we have to do? We have to drive in our SUVs, a couple blocks or whatever it is, right? I live in the city. I can walk two blocks to the precinct. And I mean, heaven help us if we have to wait in line an hour. Okay, <laughs> heaven help us, right? And our voter turnout is usually always less than 50%. The voter turnout in most developing countries is usually, I mean, between, I believe, don't quote me, it's 70 to 90%. Wow. Why? Because they understand the power of the ballot box and they appreciate the power of the ballot box in a way I feel like Americans don't. I also say in some ways, and the first thing I will do too is when people, you know, when, when I'm having discourse, again, I have learned, I have learned through my career now, I will always listen to a conversation. I will always listen to a side of an argument, especially when I don't disagree with it. And then when there's a pause, my first question is this, did you vote? It's the first question I asked. Because based on how you answer that question is going to tell me a lot about you. Exactly. It's going to tell me a lot about if you really care about this, this issue. Right. Right. Because you can't even find the time to go and vote. It takes a lot of wind out of your argument. If you're then complaining to me about this issue or that specifically congressman or woman or representative or you know, attorney general, wherever it is, we have been given a great opportunity to wield our ballots. Why aren't we doing it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, it's what you were saying. I ran for city council in 2019 and I would say, and I'm sorry to my friends that listen, but I would say that 98 or 99% of my friends, males and females that were coming out to vote had never voted in a municipal election before. And I said to them, so, you know, when you complain about the Ubers that are driving down your streets and, you know, the potholes that your car gets, you know, hits and you have to go to the repair shop, you know how we have no public schools in downtown Boston, you know, right? Like I kept going on and on and on streetlights and crime and rodents and homelessness. Yeah. Well, that's the city council. That's the municipal government. Yeah. That's why you need to know who is running because you want to hear, are they just talking because they're using as a, you know, a stepping stone for Congress or are they actually talking because they're actually concerned about the issues that impact your daily life? And, and it was remarkable how many people said to me, that was the first time I ever vote for, <laughs> voted for a city councilor. I mean, my head, right. I wanted, right? right? I mean, but it was like, well, now you understand about you know, why there are 9 million bike lanes in the city of Boston, which was built for horses and carriages. <laughs> and, and then there's a ton of traffic. I mean, now we know why, because you did not vote in that municipal election. So, I mean, it's really, it's unfortunate, but it, it is one of those things that to me, when I hear things like what we take for granted, I mean, I was able to go to grads, go to college, grad school, law school as a woman, as a woman in politics, I'm allowed to say anything I feel is important without being, you know, with the fear of being hung, forget being ostracized, forget those Twitter comments like that's nothing. Right. I mean, from what you've exactly. seen, I'm not exactly. getting I'm not getting stoned. I'm not getting hung. I'm not I'm not my family is not in trouble. We're not at risk of a bombing in my house. I could run for office. I can encourage yeah. my daughters to seek out whatever careers that they want. Exactly. And, you know, I, I feel 
like you, I mean, I give you so much credit for going and, and doing that important work other places, because I think that it's so necessary for women to know that, you know, look, you know, we've had kids, right? It's so important to be a mom and love that child yeah. and, and, and grow that child to be the best he or she can possibly be. And to think, like you said about those moms, to think that your child might be in a situation where, you know, she could potentially get raped by insurgents. She could mm -hmm. potentially be beaten if she tries to get her driver's license or in, you know, in Afghanistan now where girls can't go to high school any longer. Yep. And right. I mean, just how, how lucky we are to be educated and to have those opportunities if we so choose. And if we don't, we also get to choose that. Exactly. Right. Which is much different than what a lot of the world has. And, and that is something that I feel like is not communicated because there's just so much bickering over I'm right, you're wrong, that it never gets down to the important issues of we are so lucky here. Why don't we capitalize upon this and then help others? And, you know, I became a Republican because- I was, my dad died when I was young and I lived with, obviously I lived with my mom and we moved in with my grandparents that were immigrants and they were old school Democrats, but they believed that you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, right? And you live the American dream, which is to do the best you can possibly do and be the best you can possibly be. And, uh, and I feel like that is so lost today, but that was the phenomenal message of immigrants back then and people who really had to work mm -hmm. like your family being farmers, yeah. right? Having that foundation made you realize how lucky we are to be able to have these opportunities. And I just feel like it's lost and it's really unfortunate. So you know, when you said the American dream, it, it, I agree. And it made me think of something. So years ago when I was working with the Women's Democracy Network, I was doing one of these trainings and we were talking about passion and motivation and I will never forget this. And one of the women said, okay, what's your passion and motivation, you know, for leadership and all this. And one of the women looked me dead in the eyes and she said, so that my country has its own version of the American dream. And I was like, what? And she said, you just, as Americans don't understand how real the American dream is outside of your mm -hmm. border. And I said, T tell me, right? And this is a woman, she was from Eastern, Eastern Europe. And she said, we know and believe because again, of immigrants they've known to come to the country or just stories they have heard, right? She said, we know that unlike in our country, in your country, she said this, if you just believe and work hard enough, you can succeed. She said, it is not the same in my country. She said, we can work and we can work and we can work. And this is a country that was more, more autocratic leaning. She said, we do not have those rights. And we, and it keeps the barriers from us from achieving what we want to. And I just was so stunned because I will tell you, Jennifer, I was really embarrassed because I remember going back to after the conference training that night, going back to my hotel room thinking, I think I just learned what the American dream was literally from someone not American. And it just blew my mind because to your point, think of your grandparents, right? Think, you know, I think of my family, I think of all these people and they just, they worked and they did, they all worked to the bone, but we were given opportunities, right? And we seized them. And now we are able to do it. And, and if I can leave you with one vignette, it was another story that came to mind. So years ago, um, around 2010, and it was after a ceasefire. It was a bloody, bloody decade-long civil war in between South Sudan and Sudan. And it, it was just awful. The atrocities were awful. And South Sudan became its own country. And a constitution was passed. And I was asked to go and train the new women parliamentarians. So this was the first time they were going to have a gender quota. And 25% of the women were going to be <clears throat> parliamentarians. So I flew to Kenya, got on this tiny little plane, was flying with a bunch of other, you know, aid workers. I fly in to Juba. And I will tell you, and this is after I had been to Afghanistan. I had never seen devastation like this. Oh. The plane is flying in and 
I literally looked at my coworker and I was like, there's no way people can live here. Just, I couldn't even explain it to say. So we touched down and we go to this camp we're staying at and we go to the parliament like the next day. Women had walked for hours to come to this training. What did I learn? Many of them were illiterate and most of them had fought in the civil war. I started spending lunch breaks and coffee breaks talking to them. They told me stories that to this day, as I'm sitting here with you, give me just such, such goosebumps and nausea of how most of them don't know their, how old they're. They don't know what their birthdays were because they were born during the Civil War. And of course, when you were born fleeing and trying just not to be killed, you're not going to write down what day your child was born. Then they would talk about having babies during the Civil War and how their babies, of course, many babies died, of course, right? These are not great conditions to have a child, right? You're in the bush having a Civil War and how they would put their babies in the little weed baskets. And I think of the story of Moses, right? And when his mother put him in the reed basket and put him in the Nile, we were on the Nile. They would put these babies in the reed baskets and they would talk about how they would see the, the other side of the army they could see them. They would watch them as they were hiding and they would take their baby reed baskets, dump the babies out and it would take the baskets because right. It was Ugh. so impoverished. No one had anything. And they would take the baskets for, you know, chattel. Ugh. And these were the women who came to show up at the training to help create a new country. Because when them. you have nothing else to lose, you have everything to gain. That I, is amazing. Right. I mean, I just, I don't even know how to articulate what that did to change sort of my, my world viewpoint on why we all have to give back, why we all have to be involved. Um, and I think it is sometimes when we almost have too much or we are too comfortable, right? These women had nothing left to give, right? Except for to, and I'd asked them that and they said, what else do we have? We just have to try to make it better. So, you know, I leave us all with that. There is a lot of good that's happening, out of, you know, all across the world. I feel very honored that I have gotten to see some of it. I've learned so much from some of these women. And I'm just hopeful that I can somehow, I'm always looking for opportunities to kind of impart that here at home and, and to kind of take some of what I've learned from them and, and hopefully, you know, get people here more invested, I would say, in public service, right? Because we do have a lot. We have less to lose, but it is so important. We've been given so much. And I think it's just right. We all get involved and give back. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do think that democracy is so fragile. And I, I see, you know, living in the Northeast, uh, how our elections, even though they're free and fair, you know, we are very heavily balanced, very heavily balanced, very heavily weighted on the blue side. And, you know, there's no purple and, and it changes the conversations. And uh, earlier today, I was I was talking with a Democrat who said, yeah, well, you know, I mean, here in Massachusetts, you know, when we've had Republic, when we've had Democratic governors, now we've had a lot of Republican governors over the last 20 something years. But when we've had the Democratic governors, you know, eat, there's even diversity be in the Democratic Party. And, you know, it's not that just if there's a Democrat elected to the governor's office that everyone's going to agree. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, OK. So, you know, kind of like in your stories. So if all the men hold all the positions, that means that they're not going to be weighted toward only issues you know, for men in favor of men. And we're going to now forget about women. I mean, you know, that's why you work so hard to get women in in positions where they're heads of state, right? And and parliament and, and that they have a voice because it does change it. And it is an issue. And whether you're in an all red state or an all blue state, you want to have those conversations. That is what true democracy is and why this nation and how this nation was founded. And it just kills my soul a little bit every single time you watch an election and 
one party is so happy. Yeah, great. You won. But you see what's going on in in Congress today with the White House, you know, and it's it, it just doesn't feel like it's for the American people as a whole. It feels like it is completely tailored toward one side. And you hope that people listen to your stories and 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 hear and see and take a moment to understand what goes on around the world and just how delicate that democracy is and how important it is to have conversations with people that you don't necessarily agree with because you hope that most people, and of course there are the fringes on either side that we should just extricate from the country. But I mean, for the most part, you know, most people I like to think, even though I might come at it from the right, someone else might come at it from the left, we want the same thing. You know, we want the country to be healthy. We want there to be democracy. We want to give people opportunities, continued opportunities, and we want to be safe. You know, we want economically to be free and to prosper, you know, all those great things that, that we were founded on. And, you know, your stories, I think, are really First of all, you will definitely leave a long-lasting legacy on on all the work that you've done globally for women and to help them and to give them a voice, which is so, so impressive. And you should you should just be so proud of yourself. And you're such a role model for your daughter. And I'm going to make my daughters listen to this <laughs> podcast with you. Because maybe, maybe one of them will fall in your footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be phenomenal, but I really, it's, it's such a nice uh, changes the view of politics, because I think for a lot of us who have been in this business for a long time, politics seems and what the media makes it out to be is so mean and cold. And, you know, you just want to get into a ring and box someone and, you know, punch someone's lights out and that's it. And really, at the end of the day, it's about making societies better. And that's exactly what you're doing. So thank you, Michelle, for your work. And thank you for being on Political Contessa and sharing with us. And um, it's been great. So so again, thank you, Michelle. And I want to say for for you out there, you know, we in in politics, and a lot of times I talk about policy issues, or I have guests on and, and we just kind of go at the issues of the day, or the things that we have faced as women in politics. But at the end of the day, we all, I think, should leave some sort of legacy. And in order to leave a legacy, you have to do something that is good, empowering, And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be just writing a nice note to someone who does something nice to you. Every time that happens, it could be, you know, going to get an extra degree and going and finding a field that no one works in. It could be, you know, baking cupcakes for your kid's teacher because they're working so hard. Whatever it is, just leave some sort of legacy you don't have to be Michelle. <laughs> she's she's a powerhouse and she is extraordinary. And she is kind of on one end of the spectrum. But for most of us, us normal people that don't strap on our Wonder Woman cape every day, go out there, talk about politics, talk about policy, have conversations with people that don't agree with you. And remember, it's because we want to make the society a better place. We want to make this country a better place. And we want to leave a better world for our children or our nieces and nephews or our friends, kids, or whoever it is than what we found it as. So thank you. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 